0: First of all, thank you to uh, Ryan for putting in the preparation for that this morning on that scripture lesson. We are in a, um, we're we're in a chapter of Ecclesiastes where we're talking about an important subject. So we are talking about God and government this morning. And it's weird, you know, I, I think we as Christians sometimes have a hard time figuring out where we draw the lines with this stuff. And I'm not bringing it up for the fun of it. It just happens that we are landing in the first part of chapter eight of Ecclesiastes where we're talking about that very thing. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is kind of a shift, right? Solomon's no longer laying out his arguments for the meaning of life, and, and he has up until this point, and, and he's come to the conclusion several times already that this life under the sun, all of this only makes sense if there is a God who is in heaven, who is good, and who is sovereign, right? But now he gives practical advice based on the truths that, that he's unfolded so far. And it's funny, since I've been uh, preaching through Ecclesiastes, I keep running across these, these memes and different posts and things on social media, and, and perhaps it's just on my radar, radar now more. You know how that works? Like, you get a minivan, then you can't stop seeing minivans all over the road. <clears throat> that happened to us, true story. But I've seen some funny ones about Ecclesiastes, and I saw one recently that I thought was excellent. It was a quote by J.I. Packer. And he says, the Psalms, they teach us how to pray. The the book of Proverbs teaches us how to behave. Uh, The the book of Job teaches us how to suffer. Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live. I think that's true. And it's in the the last part of the book here that it really starts to be the application portion of how to live life in light of these truths that he's he's talked about. So let's pick up where we left off, beginning at chapter 8, verse 1. Read with me now the words of the one true and living God. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of the thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he who does whatever he pleases... For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Let's pray. Father, again, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, God. We thank you for your word, and God, I ask that as, uh, as I begin to preach this morning, that you would... You would allow for your word to feed your people. That you would move me out of the way, God. That your sheep would hear your voice as the good shepherd. God, that we would follow you. That our allegiance, that our submission would ultimately be to you and your authority over our lives. God, I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way Solomon sets out here in the beginning of chapter 8, he starts posing the question, how does a believer live under the sun given the painful realities that we've just observed in the previous seven chapters? How should the righteous live in an unrighteous world? And the first thing he addresses is our recognition of the authorities that God has sovereignly placed over us. He says in verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Obey the governing authorities because part of God's design is these governing authorities having authority. We observe and obey the laws of the land because God has sovereignly placed those in authority over us in their positions of authority. So the question, or questions that I want to pose this morning, and these are your points of the sermon this morning, are should we as Christians obey the government? And should we as Christians ever disobey the government? And the answer to both questions is yes. Because that's the Bible's answer. It doesn't matter what the world's answer is, it doesn't matter what your political party's answer is. The Bible's answer is yes. Bible-believing Christians have an obligation to obey the government and an obligation to disobey wicked and tyrannical governments. Scripture and all of history is replete with examples of that. And we'll look at some this morning, including this one, and talk about what godly disobedience looks like. Because it's a thing. There's such a thing as godly disobedience. Were it not for godly troublemakers, y'all, y'all would not have Bibles to read for yourselves. You wouldn't be allowed to do that. The reformers were godly troublemakers. Were, were it not for godly troublemakers, you would not have a constitution. And, and, and just so we're on the same page here, that, and that in and of itself is not perfect, right? The law of God is perfect. So insofar as our governments are servants of God, ministers of god upholding righteousness and punishing evil the way that god says they should and as, as paul says about civil rulers in romans 13 we are to obey them these are structures that god has put in place for our good now this is a subject that gets real wi- real wild real fast in our country because too many american christians insist that the pulpit is no place for politics And the result is a church divided on moral issues we should never be divided on, that God's Word speaks clearly and loudly about. And it also, uh, what results from that is we have, frankly, ignorant Christians with a shallow gospel and, and private Christianity that has no real effect on the world. When it comes to forming our opinions about public policy, legislation, and candidates, we put our religion down because we believe that these two things are entirely separate categories, and they're just not. Don't buy into that, okay? Don't buy that. that that's what every wicked government has ever wanted Christians to believe since the beginning, for two millennia. You know, you think about it. What has every government in the history of the world ever wanted? Ryan was talking about this a little bit earlier. What has every government in the history of the world ever wanted? your obedience and for you to recognize its sovereignty whether it's one king or, or it's an institution and an entire establishment you know if the, it doesn't matter if the idol has one face or many it's still an idol demanding your allegiance The idea that the pulpit's no place for politics is a lie. But but here's the thing. This is what I want to make clear. We have to make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. Right? We keep the main thing the main thing. We don't get wrapped up in party politics. But we have to recognize there is a heavenly politic we should all be concerned with, and that is that Jesus is king. Amen? Jesus is king is the most political proclamation the world has ever heard, ever heard. And it's the only one that's true and everlasting. And that's why it's been, it's been hated for centuries. It, it, it's a threat to the lordship of earthly rulers. It always has been. It always will be, until Christ returns. You have to remember, early Christians, y'all, were not hated for loving Jesus. Okay? Early Christians were not killed for worshiping Jesus. Worship who you want. That's how why was. You worship who you want. It didn't matter. Just recognize that Caesar is Lord over your life and be fully submitted to his authority. They were killed because they said, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's why they lost their heads. If they'd have said it, it would have saved their skin. And I know this is graphic, y'all, but this stuff happens and it's important for us to kind of remember because we think of martyrdom and it's like, yeah, that happened, it was terrible, it was awful. Y'all, they used to skin people alive. You could save your skin, you know that expression, by just saying it, just say it. You can go back to your Bible study after you say it. Just say, Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do it. Fed the lions because of it, right? Right? They weren't hated for who they worshiped, they were hated for who they didn't. They were hated as enemies of the state, just like Jesus was. Y'all remember that? When Jesus is before Pilate, he tells him he would have no authority over him if it were not given to him from above. And then John chapter 19, verse 12 and following, I'll read this, you don't have to turn there. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Right? And then he goes on to say, you know, I I see no fault in him, so on and so forth. And uh, he he says um, to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That was music to their ears. That's what obeying your government unquestioningly looks like. You can have your God or your gods, but your obedience is due to your king. Show me who or what is your king. Show me who or what is your ultimate authority that you obey, and I will show you your God. You know, that, that's the idea. It's not about open rebellion and anarchy. It's about not allowing anyone or anything to claim ultimate authority over your life because it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to Jesus and to Him alone. In fact, there's there's nothing that is not, there's nothing that is that is not Jesus's. There's nothing that is that does not belong to Him. Uh, Abraham Kuyper was famously quoted for saying there's not one square inch over all the earth that Jesus does not cry, mine. It's all his. Claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ isn't just saying he's lord over my life, he's lord over my heart. He's not just lord over his church and then everyone else is a law unto themselves. Y'all, if that were true, what's he coming back in judgment for? For what, Right? You know, people over here that aren't a part of the church, they're still under God's authority and law. That's why they stand condemned. That's why they need the gospel, right? Because the wrath and curse of God is still holding over them like a a dark cloud. And we have the only news that can offer them salvation and forgiveness. The way we understand the claim of Jesus Christ, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, is that he actually is. He's, he's not one king among many kings. He's not one lord among many lords. He's not the best of all the kings and all the lords. Like it's a Miss America pageant or something. Right? He, he really is over and above all. And because he is, he alone is the one true king to whom all allegiance and obedience is commanded, even the obedience of earthly kings. You see how this works? Jesus is king, then, when we say that. This is a threat to wicked rulers, and they don't like it. They never have, and they never will. Because they want from you what Jesus wants from you. So that's a lot of legwork to make the point that your politics should not be divorced from your Christianity. We don't get to say, yeah, politics are important, but it's not a gospel issue. Yes, it is. It is. It's a gospel issue. Jesus' authority is a gospel issue. Because Jesus is king is good news. That's good news. The Great Commission doesn't begin and end with go and make disciples, right? I think sometimes we, that we think Great Commission, and that's the piece we camp out on, and it's good, it's true, right? But there's more to it. It begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it ends with teach all nations to obey. Teach all nations to obey. And where Christians have done that throughout history, the world has been turned upside down. But they've also been slaughtered, not for loving Jesus and having soup kitchens and Bible studies, but for being enemies of states. When faithful Christians go into mission fields in some of these dangerous areas throughout history, armed not with swords, but with the Word of God, they often get killed, not not, not for uh, acts of war, but acts of treason, because they, their message, not them themselves, not because they, they come in threatening physical harm, but because their message is a threat to the governing powers and sovereign authorities that have been established in these areas. Martyrdom has, has been the result of this message going forth. The gospel proclamation coming into a place where these establishments exist, it's a threat to their sovereignty. And martyrdom, when we talk about that, seems pretty extreme to us today, but it's par for the course for Christianity, for a lot of history. Still is in parts of the world today. And it reminds us our religion, Christianity, is not a comfortable one. I mean, we're pretty comfortable. Right? We're pretty comfortable today, and there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. Right? But the comforts that we enjoy today were earned for us by rebellious Christians who were braver than we are. They recognized tyranny and they defied it, citing God's law as the reason. They recognized governments were instituted by God for his purposes. And they're supposed to stay in their lane, right? Separation of church and state. We, we, we hear that all the time. That gets thrown in our face, right? When we try to bring God's word to bear on things that are going on in the political sphere, things that are going on in the culture, when we, when we as Christians try to say, well, God says, and they say, no, leave that out. No, no, no. It, y- y- y'all probably already know this, but just in case you don't, you realize separation of church and state was our idea, right? Christians invented that. Christians invented separation of church and state. They said the state has no authority over the church. You have no jurisdiction here. Right? They tried that already. It didn't work out so good for them. That's why they came here and started over. And from the beginning, we're like, nope. State's not going to come in here and speak into what goes on in the church. Now, what it didn't mean is that they believed that the state was not under God. Of course they believed that. There's nothing that's not under god all right if i haven't convinced you by now that christians shouldn't pretend they're not christians when it comes to politics you either won't be convinced that's fine or maybe we need to go to lunch this week open our bibles and just spend some time together it is worth doing that y'all if you want to do that i would like nothing more we can do that okay okay but with all that said, let's answer these questions. Our main points, should we obey the government and should we disobey the government? Should we obey the government? And the answer, as we've already said, is yes. It's a qualified yes, though. It's a qualified yes. It's not a no. It, it does not honor God to disobey the institutions that he has sovereignly placed over us, but those institutions are not an authority unto themselves. They answer to God and exist To do his will, not their own. Now how about disobeying the government? Should we ever disobey the government as Christians? And again, the answer is yes, but it's a qualified yes. It's not a no. We don't submit to or obey our government as though it were God. And where our government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we have a duty to defy the government whatever the cost to us. Why? Y'all listen, don't check out on me. Here's why. Because of love for God and love for neighbor. We have no higher law. There is no law higher. Love for God, love for neighbor. So what Solomon says here in chapter 8 when Paul is, is the same thing Paul says in Romans 13 about civil authorities. We have to take what they're saying here and we have to couch it in the fact that the ultimate authority is God. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. No one that you swear your ultimate allegiance to but God. With that in mind, okay? With that in mind, Solomon says, keep the king's command. And in the second part of verse 2 here I can objectively say is it, it, translated a little poorly in the ESV why i say that i'm not basing that off of just my my own uh translation out of the hebrew it's just if you look at every other english version everyone seems to pick up on something that's not picked up on here and that's it, it reads keep the king's command because of god's oath to him but what we really see is keep the king's command because of god's i'm sorry because of your oath to god you see the difference So it's tricky in the Hebrew, okay? So you can see why there might be, uh, you know, a little bit of a discrepancy there. But rather than it being uh, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, what's really in view there, and it makes sense in context with the rest of the passage, is keep the king's command because of your oath to God. Recognizing he is sovereign, he has sovereignly placed an authority over you. That's what we see. The king has no authority had it not been given to him by God, but his authority is not your final or ultimate authority. It's not obey no matter what. No earthly sovereign has the right to your absolute obedience because God has not given them that authority. You see that? The only authority they have is what's given to them by God, and he has not given them the authority to have absolute authority over you. Your final authority is God, and for that reason, be subject to your rulers, but only be subject to them insofar as their laws are in keeping with the laws of God. Where they are not, you have every right and duty to call your leaders to repentance and submission to the one true king. Where you find your leaders, and we find them today, right? And sometimes our minds only go to like the big stuff, right? Like abortion. We talk about that, and we say, you can't do that. Uh, there's a lot of other ways in which our leaders promote injustice. This, this is carried on. It's something that happens under the sun. We've looked at that in previous chapters already, how to wrestle with that, how to deal with that. But we have to be able to recognize that we have one true king who is, who is sovereign. These things do happen under the sun. And we have a duty to call our leaders to repentance and submission to their authority. So catch the difference here in what we think of as rebellion or revolution and what godly rebellion actually looks like. We don't call rulers to submit to us and our whims. We don't try to bend everybody to our own ideas and our own principles and say, well, if I were in charge, this is what I would want it to look like. That's not what we do. That's sin, okay? That's sin. That that makes you know better than them. But but what we call on them to do is to submit to God and his statutes. Why? Why? Because they're not just good for some of us, they're good for all of us. All of us are made in God's perfect image, and he knows what's best for his his image bearers. He knows what's best for his creatures. The following verses actually give us some instruction on on how to do that. We don't storm off in a fit of rage against the king. Verse 3, because he sins or he made a mistake, we're grace people, right? Right? We're grace people. We know what grace is. We've, we've received grace and mercy, and so we can extend grace. We're slow to become angry, and we acknowledge that we're sinners too, and we make mistakes too. We don't take our stand in an evil cause, it says at the end of that same verse. We don't return evil for evil, and it's not wise anyway to do that because as Solomon points out, he's, you know, the king's still king. He does whatever he pleases, So if you come in there hot-headed and and demanding things from him, you might just lop your head off, right? That wouldn't be wise to do that. He says in verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And he says, as he said in in chapter 3, there's a time for everything. There's a time where, you know, he's, he's not calling for anarchy here, but there's a time and a just way God's calling for obedience to him within the bounds of what he's sovereignly set in place. There's a right and a wise way to correct a king or governing authority, and it's not by sinning yourself. We don't return evil for evil. But Solomon acknowledges there is a need for speaking prophetically into the political sphere. There's a place for talking back. There's a place for talking back. There's a place for telling the king, the government, you cannot do that. Why? Because God says. And what are they going to do? Well, leave God out of it. I can't leave God out of it. You can't do it because God says. There, you don't need another reason. You don't need another reason. God is the sovereign. You know, you think of Psalm 2, Psalm uh, 2. What the psalmist says there, kiss the sun lest he be angry. He warns the rulers of the earth, kiss the sun lest he be angry. His wrath is quickly kindled. And I love every verse in the Bible that's real tight packed where it's got the good news and the bad news all in one, right? So that's the bad news. Be warned, wicked rulers. Kiss the sun lest you perish. His wrath is quickly kindled. All those who take refuge in him are blessed. All those who take refuge in him. So again, Solomon isn't saying being perfectly timid and, and, and is being an obedient citizen. He even says at the end of this section, verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. What's man do when he gets power? Usually hurts man. It's usually what he does. So the context context of what he's saying alerts us that there's a limit to our obedience to governing authorities. Disobedience to the king or governing authorities out of a heart or a desire to be a law unto yourself is sin. we clear on that? Disobedience for your own sake is sin. Disobedience where you're stepping out of line with with, with the the little boxes that, that the government draws for you because you're stepping out to be able to say, hey, look, I'm crying foul here. You're out of line according to God that you're accountable to, that you'll give an account to God one day for the the authority that has been given to you. I'm telling you out of love and with sincerity and humility, you're wrong, you're out of bounds. There's a place for doing that, even if they tell you, you can't. Disobedience to governing authorities because they mock God who you love with all your heart. And because they destroy his image bearers, your neighbors that you're supposed to love as yourself is not sin, but an expression of your allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As the old Scottish Presbyterian John Knox famously said, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Why? Because tyrannical governments make themselves gods expecting your worship and they destroy lives in the process. They destroy people made in God's own image. And our command is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we have no higher law than this. Love God, love neighbor. This will need to be the subject of like a Sunday school series or something because I think it's worth the time it takes to think through these issues carefully and to be able to hear from you, to be able to have sort of a question and answer and work through this stuff together. It is worth doing, and I I hope that we'll do it soon, but we can't camp out there too long today. What I want us to be able to answer is the questions: should we obey, should we disobey, right? And we said in both cases it's a qualified yes. We need to be thinking people who know our Bibles and know our history so we can be useful for the building up of the kingdom of God. Really, the question I want for us to be able to answer this morning, brothers and sisters, is does Jesus have authority over here? Are there places in our minds that we, we leave him out of? We don't intend to, we don't intend to, but just kind of based on the The milieu of of our time and of our culture and the way things are going, things that we read and hear and and in our conversations, are there things that we unwittingly leave Jesus out of? Is, Is he sovereign over here too? What does it mean that he is ruling and reigning? Is that just something we say? Is it just something we say that Jesus has all authority or does he really? And if he does, does he have Uh, all authority over some things, or some authority over all things? Are there sort of protected spaces with signs that read, no Jesus allowed, that even Jesus has to obey? Or did God taking on flesh and coming and dying and rising again from the dead and bringing his kingdom actually have an effect that is experienced and realized and that we are a part of? If Jesus has all authority over all things, and he does, then he has authority over the government, and they are called to obey him. And we, as the ambassadors of Christ, are called to call them to obey him. See? Jesus as king is a political statement. We don't endorse candidates from the pulpit. Okay? If that's what people mean when they say no politics in the pulpit, I agree But we have to be able to talk about how our Christianity comes to bear and how we think about these things. It matters. Because Christ is king. People say, we don't need to get hung up on that. We just preach the gospel. Jesus came for authority. And he has it. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no other man. For there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. You remember Peter said that? Acts chapter 4. Here's something you may not know. I'll put a little more meat on that bone for you, and I'm going to close with this. Augustus Caesar, who who was king before the time that that Peter was preaching, he he was like the head honcho, right? And and he was the head of the state of Rome, and he made that statement about himself, okay? There was an an inscription on a statue of of Augustus Caesar that, that said... There is salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Making himself a deity, right? He is the salvation of Rome. And every other Caesar after him, you know, took that upon themselves, made that claim about themselves, that there was no salvation in anyone else. The Caesars offered economic and social salvation. He was the sovereign, the world power, the leader of the free world, and in his kindness and mercy, he promised peace and freedom of religion. As long as you didn't let your religion get in the way of the authority of Caesar. Sounds familiar to American ears, I hope. Peter quotes that inscription the governors of Rome were very familiar with and ascribes it to Jesus, y'all. That's the... That's the sucker punch of that statement that we don't see in the text right you have to kind of look at history to see how all that matches up where that was coming from that's the gut punch of his statement that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved it's like he took it off of that marble statue and he put it on an old rugged cross and he said no not this that he is not lord jesus is Peter's in public being brought before rulers and judges and commits treason to their face. Because Peter knows they don't have good news. Their authority is not the gospel. Jesus' authority is. They do not offer salvation to anyone who bends the knee. Jesus does offer salvation to anyone who bends the knee and recognizes him alone as Lord of their life. The world is not won for Christ by political revolution, but by biblical proclamation. Do leave here with that little nugget this morning. The world is not won for Christ by political revolution, but by biblical proclamation, and that biblical proclamation needs to be made outside these four walls. Has to to make it out of your living rooms. Has to make it out of our hospitals and our soup kitchens, okay? It needs to hit the state houses and the Congress floor. Because there's no place Jesus is not king. And he demands obedience. And here's the difference between him and everyone else demanding your obedience he is worthy, he alone is worthy. He's worthy of your obedience and your complete submission. He is worthy to be Lord over your life. You can trust him with that, and he will never fail you. Give to man what God commands, but never give to man what belongs to God. Christ alone is worthy. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you again, as we always do, for your word, for the truth of your word, for its clear instruction and in how your promises that we find there uh, are, are true. Lord Jesus, you were promised the nations, and we know you intend to have them. I pray, Lord, that as that we as your ambassadors would not shy away from opportunities to point people to the the authority you have been given. And Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that you would open their eyes to the truth. Their hearts would be changed and they would become loyal subjects to you, our rightful king. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace that revealed that to me when I was a rebellious sinner. And to all the other people here who were once your enemies, but now are your children. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.